used to believe that there wasn't a glass ceiling. And there is. I very clearly know the first moment my head hit it. Absolutely. Very, very clearly. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning, and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes, and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Sarah Jane Holton was born in Gloucestershire in England and moved to Australia when she was 13 because her father, Charles Holton, was recruited to head the Department of Transport. She studied psychology at the Australian National University and went on to work in the Australian Bureau of Statistics and the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Jane Holton was the youngest ever person to head a uh, department at age 42 uh, when she was chosen to head the health department uh, and then went on to head the department of finance, the first woman to run that department uh, and retired uh, after 14 years as a departmental secretary and 33 years as a public servant. Uh, She said at the time, uh, after nearly 15 years as a secretary, having beaten my father's record of time as secretary, uh, it is the right time to go. As a Labor person, I remember Jane most from uh, two things, uh, her her chairpersonship of the Howard government's People Smuggling Task Force in 2001 and delivering plain packaging for cigarettes. Uh, Since her retirement from the public service, Jane has moved on to the ANZ board. And she's here today to talk about leadership in the public sector. Jane, thanks for being part of the Good Life podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. So how do you characterise your your management style as a leader? (laughs) Well, I I have to start by correcting you. Far away. Can I do that? Um, So I wasn't the youngest ever. There were several people who were slightly younger than me when they became secretaries, including my dad, which he never failed to remind (laughs) me. I should have said youngest at the time, shouldn't I? Absolutely youngest at the time. So there you go. But uh, I, I had the last laugh because I lasted longer. So there, so there you go. <laughs> so anyway, back to leadership. Uh, how do you think of yourself, your management style? Um, so I mean, I think it's quite interesting, particularly for women who are leaders in the public sector, because certainly when I became relatively senior, there weren't a lot of women around. And I was very lucky that I did work for a lot of senior women. So I had a few people to watch. But there, when I was coming up the ranks, there were no female secretaries. And even in those days, you didn't even see a secretary very much. So the notion of how the big leadership tasks were tackled um, from either gender, but let alone from the female perspective, was just not something you could even watch to learn from. Mm. So I think everyone... At the end of the day, you have to find your own voice in leadership. And one of the things I say to people is never put on someone else's mask because everyone's going to know it's not yours. So one of the things I had to figure out was what was my voice, what was my face when it came to leadership. And um, I mean, I've got a reputation for being pretty robust and but also calling it quite straight for what I see. Um, I mean, I think I've done that in both contexts. If you think about, you talked about my nearly 15 years as a secretary. Well, I split that pretty evenly between Labor and Liberal governments. And the comment that was made about me as I departed by people from both sides of politics was, you never in any doubt what Jane thinks. And that's true. And so my approach to leadership was always lead by example, um, encourage my people and try and find an environment where they had a voice I've really worked hard at bringing women up through the system. I've always liked the Madeleine Albright line that there's a special place in hell for any woman who doesn't reach down and pull other women up, and I still think that's the case. How um, do you do that in a practical sense? Well, and we might talk about this in some detail at a la- later point, but, I mean, there is a, there's a whole thing about gender we see in leadership. 
Um, and I describe it, and this isn't new, it's incredibly well-traversed pathway. The number of women I've seen say, oh, you know, I couldn't apply for that job, it's got seven capabilities, and gee, well, I've got seven of them, but not really very well, and, you know, there's a couple of blokes out there with apologies to the blokes who are listening. Um, they go, I've got one nailed, the six, I'm going to wing it. And <laughs> it's true. And women do imposter syndrome, I think, better than many other people. They do that, oh, I shouldn't really be here, and shortly someone's going to catch out that I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and for the women listening, you would be pleased to know every so often I'd catch myself doing exactly that and have to mm. slap myself about and say, stop it, don't be stupid. So putting women in a position sometimes um, by a slight ruse, go and act in that job for a while. Yeah, oh, you'll be fine. And then after six months saying, you know what, you're doing the job, now apply for it. And certainly when I got to finance, having learnt the lessons from the 12 and a half years in health, I... I had come to the conclusion you you could just move. you just got to do it. Mm. And certainly by the time I left, finance had 48% of its SES women. So, you know, you can do it, but you've got to make a conscious effort. And I'm, I'm not a big fan. I don't mind it, but I'm not a big fan of just doing lots of academic-type training. Um, my attitude is just do it. Uh, did you, uh, I mean, the family friendliness is obviously one big aspect of trying to encourage uh, women to, to yep. move up the ranks. How did you manage to uh, navigate that terrain as a, a, as a manager? Well, interestingly enough, one of the things that I did when I had children, and I had my first child, who is 28 later this year, so we're talking a while ago, um, I had him when I was in the Department of Finance as a section head, as a director. And... Um, when I went back to work, it was in the middle of the budget, so we just kind of knuckled down. But shortly thereafter, I actually joined the Senior Executive Service. And one of the things I decided quite consciously, um, being conscious that I hadn't had that many female role models, let alone female role models who actually were visible about their kids, mm. I thought, well, you know, parenting's now part of me and my life, and I'm not going to hide that. Now, I didn't work part-time. That was my decision. I'm not very good at sitting at home. Um, which is why I'm still pretty busy even now, let's be honest. Self-knowledge is always important. But what I decided was, you know, if a minister rang me, which they did, saying, I really need to see you now, and if that meant I had to turn up with one of the kids or a child, um, I'd do it. Mm. And I mean, I remember once going to see, um, from the later side of politics, for, for your benefit, Peter Staples, uh, about something in the home and community care space. Now, I walked in the door with, uh, at that point, I had one child, a toddler, and and I said to them, look, you know, no childcare available, Trevor's out of town, you get me, but you get Morgan. And they went, you know what, we're also the Minister for Childcare, we can't really object, can we? I said, no, you can't, in any event, you want to see me, that's what you get. And, and so I did that just quite, not so much to stick it in people's faces, but it was the way of actually making the work um, possible. Mm. And I figured if it didn't worry me, why should it worry anybody else? And frankly, if it worried anybody else, I couldn't have cared less. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, running along the corridor with Jocelyn Newman one time when she was the Minister for the Status of Women on the way to the chamber briefing her on something, you know, with a baby on one hip and a toddler on my hand. And again, I thought to myself, well, how appropriate is this? It's not a problem. What what uh, other tips do you give to people who you're trying to promote? I mean, there must be those that, as a manager, you sort of you you see a particular spark and you're keen to encourage someone to to stretch their wings. How do you how do you go about doing that? Well, I mean, I think I'm a bit in favour of the push people a little. Um, you know, sometimes people are reticent. They are doing imposter syndrome. They have a, a confidence problem. And you never want to put people in a situation where you ruin their confidence. Now, sometimes people have bad experiences and that's regrettable and you can't always prevent mm. it. But I'm, a, I'm not a fan of, of putting someone in a risky position knowingly. Um, I think that's just bad practice. But giving people an opportunity, um, listening to people, uh, I mean, one of the things in finance, I remember someone saying to me one day, oh, do you mind if I bring uh, a more junior member of the staff? When we talk about that issue, I said, no, of course not. You know, of course bring them. Mm. So they can hear the conversation, they can participate in it. Um, it's their work. 
So I think really exposing people, and I know these days that can be harder. I mean, when I was a relatively junior officer, I remember when I was what was known then as um, a Clark Class 8 to, I'm conscious here of age, so for for many people they don't even know what that was, but if we take in the modern language, an APS 6. I used to get sent to negotiate with states and territories on my own uh, in relation to arrangements, particularly in relation to the Home and Community Care Program. Now, I think most of us would struggle to see a situation where your average APS 6 would be sent out to do anything on their own. But I do think we do have to, to, to give people an opportunity to be tested and to sometimes make mistakes and do it in a way that's safe. When I did my valedictory, I, I talked about the great privilege I'd had, which was to stick my feet in the fire, um, get a bit burnt, and then to walk on more solid um, platforms. And I think as a manager, that is one of your challenges, to actually give people an opportunity to make mistakes. Everyone makes them. And I used to say to people, you make mistakes, please don't make the same one twice. That, that worries me. But you're going to make mistakes. Uh, one of the common themes that seems to be emerging in these valedictory speeches from you and your, and your colleagues is, is the notion of uh, reactivity. And... Uh, I'm uh, conscious of not sort of stepping into the politics and policy space, but one of the uh, ways in which it seems to, to emerge is that uh, in a, an, an era of email and high, much greater connectivity um, where people not just in the public service are, are, inclined, are just overwhelmed by their inbox and their in-tray uh, with less time perhaps for planning than in the past. Mm. How did you go about carving out that space to, to think and to, and to come up with new ideas? I mean, I think your point is so well made. Um, the challenge, and I see it even now, the challenge for people of busy work and never just stopping for a second is one of the grand challenges, mm. I think, of our time. And you're absolutely right. We get driven by a volume of email, phone calls, whatever it might be, a huge pile of ministerials. And depending on where you work, there's always something. It's like a machine that just drives you along. And I, particularly now from the outside, I watch people as they just try and sit across this enormous volume. And I know myself, like I have a lot of energy. I always have had. Um, and so... People used to say I had a huge capacity for work, and that's true, and it's genetic. It's got nothing to do with any particular, you know, personal strength. It's just pure luck. Um, But I do think people need to think quite consciously about the opportunity to free the mind. I mean, I've, I've talked in the past about what we know about creativity, And, I mean, I've said publicly, um, I can't ever see the day of the tea lady coming back. But we know that the mind is more creative, literally, if it does nothing. Hmm. Um, You will think about that random idea just because various neurons in your head will start firing and you'll just connect up a bunch of ideas. Now, if you are constantly on the treadmill, you actually squeeze out the capacity for your brain to do what it wants. Now... I mean, I know when I was at work, I'd wake up at three in the morning and have a really good idea. Now, unlike most people, um, that wasn't kind of half a dream. And if I didn't write it down, I'd forget. I would often actually remember it. And I would often find if I had to give a speech, I'd find myself (laughs) composing it, you know, lying in bed. But, But I think the challenge for people is in whatever way that works for them, um, block off an hour on Monday morning, Mm. whatever it is that works in your context, uh, just create a little bit of time for it. You're a runner, as am I. Sometimes it's just switch your head off as you're thundering along the pavement and something will pop into your head. But busy, constant busy work is the enemy of creativity, I think. Remember uh, the US uh, Secretary George Schultz used to talk about a Schultz hour, uh, one hour hour a week in which there was absolutely nothing scheduled. Did you actually manage to put something like that formally in your diary or did you have to use sort of more informal means of, of getting that? Um, contemplative time. So, so for me, and as a, this is why I make the point, I think everyone's a bit different. Um, I mean, I one of the things I always used to do from the point at which I probably hit division head, but most certainly deputy secretary level, is I would always have a Monday morning meeting with all of my crew and just kind of chew the fat about what was going on. Now, that's not quite the 
zero going on, but it is an opportunity to freestyle across a range mm. of issues mm. um, and also give everyone an opportunity to have a say. Uh, I think finance were a little surprised at the practice when I first arrived, <laughs> but actually they came to really, uh, really I think, based on what everything they told me, think it was a really worthwhile thing to do. So for me, you know, particularly if I go out and run on my own, that's a good time for me. Yes. Um, diary time can be a little more pressed. I think you would understand that very well as well. But it's some time during the week just to let your brain do what it wants to do. Mm, mm. Yeah, I was struck when I was seconded from academia into treasury for six months, just the, the plethora of meetings. And mm. uh, you know, it impressed upon me, first of all, how much of a public servant's time is taken by meetings, but secondly, how much that brings a sense of unity of purpose. And Correct. I sort of went back to ANU seeing the place much more as a collection of self-employed small businesses than, uh, than than a sort of cohesive team. Did you also then focus on um, one-on-one coffee catch-ups with a lot of people in your team? Is that how you managed to, 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 to manage people or did you tend to do it through those formal meetings? Oh, look, I mean, coffee catch-ups, yes, sometimes, often not with people in the department, with people from mm. outside. But you know what? You could drink so much coffee you could drown. Um, I mean, it's a question of how do you just touch base with people, just a quick phone call Mm, mm. um, will often do it. So I think, again, it's the question of what is going to work best in the context and given your constraints. You know, um, some people like to go to lunch. Uh, I have to say the number of formal lunches I would have been to in the last 20 years, I could probably count on the fingers of, you know, one or two hands if they weren't things I was obliged to be at, you know, Mm. like formal functions because there was a visiting head of state or something. Um, lunchtime is not a time where I would tend to do the informal. Um, a drink after work. Yeah. I caught up with someone yesterday afternoon, someone I mentor. But you you, you just find lunch a bit too inefficient in some sense as a, as a way. I, I think that's right, Yeah. personally. I mean, one, you've got to travel. Two, you've got to sit there and eat it. Three, you've got to put up with slow service, and then it gets very frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of a particular lunch when I say that. Right. Recently, right. yes. Uh, you mentioned that you're, there's somebody you're mentoring. How, how many people are you mentoring at the oh, moment? Oh, goodness. I have a trail of people. Um, I don't actually have a formal number in my head, but it, oh, it's. I have people here and I have people overseas. Okay. Um, and it's not just all women, you'll be pleased to know. I have a mix, probably 25. Do they come to you? Do you identify them? Um, look, I have a pretty strong view about mentoring, that artificial arrangements with mentoring are not really necessarily destined for success. So the people I have that I mentor are people who often I've created relationships with either, you know, I've met in an international forum and we have some connection. Mm. People I've worked with who, you know, you get on with. People whose career you take a, a particular interest in because you think they've got capability and you just want to give them a bit of a shove so they can, you know, do the best that they can. It, it's their natural relationships that grow. So what do you get when you're mentored by Jane Holton? <laughs> Usually some very direct and frank advice, but, but also a sounding board, I think. Hmm. Um, I mean, people... I mean, what I find is, and maybe this is the, you know, the, the, the degree showing itself, there's, a, there's always a bit of reflective therapy in, in mentoring. You know, people just talk and the sound of what they have to say enables them to go, you know what, actually I can do that. Mm. Um, and obviously there's the experience that I would bring. And I, you know, people say to me, well, I thought I might do this and then I might do that. Does that sound reasonable? And in some cases the answer is, yeah, sure, give it a crack. Mm. And mm. in other cases, no, that could be a little hard. And, I mean, you're a politician. I have never been a politician, have no aspiration for anything to do with, you know, the political life. Um, But sometimes people come to you and they don't actually understand where those barriers are, those boundaries are. So explaining to people sometimes what the implications are of particular choices they're Mm. thinking of making in terms of their longer-term career. So it's that experience that's born of being around quite a while and seeing a lot. I feel like with the few people I mentor, which is definitely fewer than 25, the thing I do most commonly is to tell people that if they're contemplating quitting, that that's going to be okay. Yeah. That they're talented enough that they can make a jump and that yep. normally if you're on the fence, uh, and indeed there's a randomised trial to support this, mm. uh, you should you should take the jump. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and actually, you know, 
one of the things I am very keen on is encouraging people to stretch their wings. Mm. So it's exactly the same. Um, there's a woman around town who wouldn't classify as in the mentee category, but someone who I've given advice to over the years. And she came to me, oh, goodness me, it would be oh, 16, 17 years ago now, maybe even a little longer. You know, I'm thinking of leaving. What do you reckon? And I said, well, what do you think of leaving to go and do? She told me. Um, why think you're going to do that? She told me. What do you think you'll get out of it? She told me. I said, go for it. it all well thought through, yes. perfectly rational. And as I said to her, almost the same thing you've just said, I said, you can always come back. Mm, mm. You can always come back. And in fact, I'm reminded of um, a guy called Ching Choi who was um, at the Australian Bureau of Statistics when I was there more years ago than we should discuss and then ended up at AIHW. And having been a, a graduate there, having worked at the ANU and then joined the public service. And I got offered, um, back to the Clark label, a Clark Class 7 at the ABS because I'd had prior experience and a Clark Class 6 in the Department of Social Security. And I said to him, what do you think? And he said, oh, no, go over there. Go, go and play in the policy and the applied research space. You can always come back. Mm. And I, I actually think that's exactly right. So I entirely agree with you. What do you get out of being a mentor? Um, look, I really like to see people who are capable succeed. Um, and I really, really, particularly with the women who sometimes I find, well, don't have as much confidence mm. as the guys, I really like seeing them be able to reach the potential that they really have the capacity to reach if that's what they want. Um, you know, one of your obligations, I think, as a senior manager is is in addition to the Madeleine Albright quote, is actually to leave the place better than you found it, is to make sure you have brought on enough people um, who can replace you, who mm. who can carry on the, the baton, if you like. And in fact, one, one of the people who, um, in fact, two of them, uh, who I regularly provide gratuitous advice to, um, one of them told me the other day they were talking to each other about a particular problem and they said, now, what would Jane do about this? <laughs> but I High thought, praise indeed. Well, but I thought that's fantastic. Yes. You know, so teaching people how to manage in stressful and difficult situations, giving them the confidence that they can make those decisions themselves, it, it made me feel incredibly confident about the capacity of those people uh, and then I said, well, what did you decide? They told me, I said, yeah, I did on that too. <laughs> um, but, but, it, but it is about, um, I, I do think you have a, a, an obligation to look behind and see who you're dragging along behind mm. you. You're, um, I mean, we're, we're both speaking of you as a, as, as a uh, perfectly formed leader, as, as indeed uh, you you are and, and you were at the end of your career, but it can't always have been thus. No, uh, no. How did you how did you evolve during your your career? What are the things you feel you did better towards the end than than, than earlier on, particularly in your time at the top of departments? So so one of the things I reckon you have to learn, particularly as you go up the system, um, and I did once describe this to a minister um, in very delicate tones, but it was a lesson I had learnt. Um, and particularly for women, I think sometimes you feel it's hard to be heard. Uh, and I, I've, I've talked in the past about that circumstance where you go to a meeting and you'll make a comment and the conversation moves on and three speakers later, one of the guys will say exactly what you said. And everyone goes, oh, what a great idea. It, there is nothing more irritating. But I think sometimes what you do is you, you, you feel the need to create an enormous wave in order to get noticed or to at least have your point of view heard. The thing, the thing you, you learn as you mature in a leadership sense is how to be more subtle and sophisticated about that. And the way I described it to the particular minister I was talking to, I said, you're now a very large rock. You don't need to drop into the pond from the same height that you used to because you now basically empty the pond. And it is just that notion that as you, by definition have more visibility, more voice. Mm. Um, and people will look askance and they will take what you say 
much more to heart. I mean, I, I, I was always reminded of this. Um, all I did was, my guys used to say this in health, all you've got to do is an arch and eyebrow and we know what you're thinking. And you, but you have to understand that. So yes. if you get the mallet out to smack the tiny little bug, it's just overreach. And, and that's something you have to learn, I think. Hmm. You also uh, use, uh, use humour uh, as, as, as a leadership <laughs> yep. tool, is, is, is how I think of it, although maybe I'm sort of projecting a, a degree of kind of instrumentality onto it. Mm. Um, tell me about the graduates and secretaries. Debate. Oh, yes. Well, that, no, this was just the best fun. Um, and it is true. I, I do like a joke. And I, I am not pre- I, I'm not at all embarrassed about making a complete fool of myself in public, particularly if it's for a good cause. I actually think that's... You know, it also humanises people. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, you might be a secretary of a department, but you're a human being as well, you know, a normal person. And the, so th- there was a, a debate um, between a sort of self-selected group of secretaries. And it is fair to say that the person who was setting this up rang me first and said, Jane, would you do it? I said, yeah, yeah, I suppose I have to, don't I? He said, yeah. And we figure if we can get you in, then we can convince other people to do it. And the graduates... Um, were included a group which was a world debating champion, uh, a couple of Australian debating champions, very smart young people. And there was myself, uh, Andrew Metcalf, uh, Glennis Beecham, and Dennis Richardson. So three of us who are no longer here. Oh, and Finn. I forgot Finn. I shouldn't forget Finn. And so... We decided um, that the only way we could beat these hotshot debaters, um, and we went to our first meeting and someone was talking about, you know, the rules and how all this worked, and I, and I basically said we better um, not use the colloquialism I preface this with. I said, mm, uh, forget Marquess of Queensbury. If we don't go to town, they're going to flog us, and we just can't <laughs> have that. So um, it is fair to say we uh, we went to town. So our equipment included a lot of, um, shall we say, visual props. If people who know Andrew Metcalf can think of what Andrew Metcalf would look like without a shirt on, I'm not <laughs> saying anymore. Um, uh, Glennis was dressed as Wonder Woman. She was our silent assistant. Um, Dennis was in a wheelchair with a drip um, the bottle of which was an upended bottle of red wine. Um, Finn um, did a very passable impersonation of Angus um, from ACDC uh, across the stage at one point, and I was dressed in a suit, but underneath I was Olivia Newton-John, which prompted at one point um, one of the other side to describe me as a mutton dressed as lamb, to which our side retorted, better than you lot, who are um, lambs dressed as mutton. <laughs> Because they were all wearing extremely boring suits. And Adam Spencer was the moderator of this. He laughed so hard the whole way through. Um, And, you know, we did things like, you know, we gave them dummies so they could spit them. We gave them all participation awards. Um, I actually got the Chief Commonwealth Medical Officer to come up and drug test them at one point. (laughs) You get the picture. Um, And needless to say, we flogged them. Excellent. Yes, it was very good. Um, why is that important as a manager, apart from just, you know, the glory of winning the debate? <laughs> yeah, not that I'm competitive or anything. Yeah. Um, look, again, I, th- I think it actually shows a different side of leadership. I think it actually shows um, what it is to be a leader, but also to be a human being. It shows that you can engage with people right across the public sector. It actually displays um, a grasp of and what we were showing was our grasp of the modern world. So one of the props we used was pictures of us planking. Now, I'm assuming that you know what that is, and maybe your audience will or know. Um, there's me um, photobombing somebody in moose heads. Y- you get the picture. But I think what it said to the graduates who attended that debate, together with some of our SES staff, oh, by the way, any SES member who turned up to the debate was issued with a T-shirt, I still have mine, um, which was a yellow and gold round thing on the front of the T-shirt, which was known as the Sex Pistols, (laughs) S-E-C-S Pistols. So um, that is part of leadership. 
it's about participating in a way that shows we're human beings, which actually did have some kind of serious content in there a little bit about what it is um, to be uh, a modern leader, what it is to think about issues, how you can present yourself in a different way. And I think it was actually really important. Now, I have to say there's one bootleg copy of that um, uh, of that particular debate, but other than that, it's never gotten out to the public arena. <laughs> we'll uh, put it up with the show notes this episode. If we Excellent. Can find it on the, cool. On the internet. <laughs> uh, but th- there does seem to be a tension between what you've just said there, Jane, and uh, the view that one often hears from particularly path-breaking women leaders that you need to have a greater sense of gravitas because of some people's propensity not to take women seriously in leadership positions. Uh, You didn't find that tension or you felt confident that you knew enough of the rules, perhaps through your your dad's experience, that you knew which ones could be broken and which which wouldn't? Look, I I, I mean, I I can do the um, serious gravitas without any issues. And one one of the little things I say, particularly to women who aren't terribly confident... And to the people who've heard this, which there are probably many, so I apologise for those who I'm repeating this to. Um, one of the things I say is, if you walk into a hospital and somebody with a white coat and a stethoscope around their neck comes up to you and says, walk this way, uh, now, into this cubicle, take your clothes off, you do as you're told. You're the patient, they're the doctor, because that's what you see, you see the doctor. If that person then goes and picks up the cleaning pail, there's something incongruent, right? You're giving them mixed messages. So I've always said to people, put the coat on, wear the stethoscope and behave consistently with the image that you're trying to project. Mm. And so particularly for women who I think sometimes can betray um, the image they're trying to project because the internal insecurity can come out, they pick up the pail. Whereas if I say to people, just don't pick the pail up, even, you know, and Lisa Paul says, fake it till you make it. And frankly, if that's what works for you, do it. But my attitude was always be completely across my subject matter, be completely professional. Um, The two departments I was absolutely privileged to lead had great track records and great reputations for highly professional work. Um, Health was globally respected. You talked about tobacco for the work we did in tobacco, mm. for the work we did in pandemic. You know, I could go on. Um, finance is incredibly well respected for basically delivering time after time after time the most complex thing, which is the budget. So, so you behave consistent with that role. But you have to connect with people as a leader. And if you sit in an IRA behind a closed door, um, I think that's, that's not a good way to lead. And I don't think it's a modern way to lead. We don't live these days in a command-control world. And you talked earlier about the need to work in a collaborative, team-based way. And you're much more likely to have people want to follow you and actually tell you when you're about to fall off the edge of a cliff mm-hmm. if you have got a, a relationship with them, which is something more than just issuing instructions. You've been on the ANZ board now for a little bit less than a year, but Mm. has that uh, given you insights into the commonalities and differences between public sector and private sector management? Um, Look, it's been absolutely fascinating. And, I mean, never never let anybody uh, tell you if you're a public servant that you don't have skills that are incredibly relevant um, in that broader world. Uh, If you think about it, it's a very large institution, the bank. Um, it has a customer-facing part. Uh, one of the things I've loved about going to work in the bank um, is actually going to talk to branches. In mm. fact, some branches here in the ACT, talking to the staff about their day. And it reminds me of um, the days when I would go and visit Aboriginal medical services or aged care services or whatever, You know, talking to people about what they actually do. Uh, the notion of how you lead a really big group of people when you can't actually touch each one of them that's the challenge that you have in those big institutions big institutions that are subject to lots of regulation subject to lots of public scrutiny as we know at the moment so there's a huge amount of relevance to a public sector career like mine in that context now 
you move on a board into a governance role, and I've done global governance roles in health in particular, but mm. also with the OECD more broadly. Um, and so I'm bringing those skills that I learned in the public sector. And, okay, banking is a different industry for me. I've got to learn about banking, which I am, and I'm very much enjoying it because I like to learn new things. But there's a lot of relevant skills you learn in the public sector. And just as a uh, an advertorial as we, as we go, uh, listeners who uh, want to learn more about managing within ANZ might want to go back to our uh, conversation with Miley Carnegie, who was uh, an earlier guest on the podcast. Um, you've done quite a bit of travel, an, an unusually high amount, uh, I think, for a senior public servant, because you, uh, you were uh, president of the World Health Organization's executive board for yes. a period. Uh, and as we were speaking before uh, we started the podcast, you're doing quite a bit of travel now. Yeah. Uh, do you have any tips for making travel uh, a good part of good life? Um, I think you learn so much from travel. I mean, I was privileged in the roles that I had inside government in that I um, was elected to various roles in international organisations. And that was both a great way to make connections with people around the globe, but also actually to learn about us. Mm. So I sometimes think you have a better grasp and a perspective on what you see domestically if you have as a counterpoint to that what you see in other countries I mean sometimes things that we think here are enormous problems if you compare them to things we see offshore we actually don't have much of a problem conversely there are things that we could do much better and you understand that more I think when you see how other people are tackling tackling particular problems I mean I I do very much appreciate seeing different cultures. I, I think also it, it's both the, the context we see ourselves in but also just an opportunity to see how other people live. It's, mm. it's one of the things I very much enjoy. And it's certainly something that I like to do with the family too. So, yeah. On a very practical level, do you have uh, tips and tricks for fl- flying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, don't drink the booze because it just dries you out. Sleep as much as you can. Very simple. Sleeping tablets? No, I don't do sleeping tablets. No, I'm actually lucky I do sleep in most places. So um, I, I, I'm i a bit of a fan of melatonin for jet lag, for those who've got the opportunity, because, of course, you can't buy it over the counter in Australia, says she who, of course, had the TGA working for her for a long time. <laughs> That's because it failed around most trial, isn't it? Uh, I, no, I know. I, th- I think it's, it's more a question of what you claim it's going to be used for. Right. right. But anyway... Uh, and what about when you arrive in terms of uh, other strategies for tackling jet lag? Go for a run. Right. And you? Uh, totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, except I, I do sleeping tablets on the on, on oh, plane, as, plane as well. But uh, sleeping tablets, uh, neck neck pillow and as much running as I can exactly. when I hit the ground. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Fastest way to deal with um, your, uh, your need to readjust time zones, I think. And just a great way of getting a sense of your surroundings. Absolutely right. I feel much more connected to a city. My worst trips have been those in which I get off a plane and go and sit in a conference room somewhere for a couple of days. Although I have to tell you that uh, some of the places I have attempted to run, which include Delhi, possibly it wasn't the wisest thing (laughs) I ever did. But there you go. That's another little tip. Uh, Actually, my best ever travel and running uh, story, which was slightly scary, was, uh, and this was not international travel, but I had gone um, to do some work in Aboriginal health uh, in the Northern Territory and I was on Elko. And I was staying um, in some accommodation near the clinic and I was staying with uh, David Eldridge from the Salvation Army and he and I were up there to do some work. And I slapped on the running shoes and the next morning and off I trotted stupidly not having thought very carefully about this and as I came back through the sort of um, the houses all of a sudden I felt something behind and I turned and there was an entire pack of dogs behind me and then I looked where I was going and there was an entire pack of dogs in front of me and at that point as a woman who was wearing a singlet a crop top and a sh- pair of shorts, I thought possibly I had made something of an error of judgment. <laughs> but as it happened, with a very firm uh, voice, I managed to get back to my accommodation where I thought there's a lesson learned there. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, one of the other things we haven't touched on too is uh, the importance of philanthropy in your life yes. and your, no- your notion of a good life. Yeah. Um, how did you manage to build a 
philanthropic culture in the organisations that you led? I am... I have a really strong view that a workplace is something that takes so much of your time and isn't just a place where you come in and execute a bunch of tasks and leave again. I mean, it's one of the reasons I am such a, a supporter of, um, you know, making sure every person in the workplace can come with their whole self um, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander colleagues, our LGBTIQ colleagues, etc. I just think it's incredibly important. But I also think that workplaces, which are big institutions, it's really important that they engage with the communities that they sit in, that they're a part of. Mm. And so when I was in health, um, it was really a complete privilege to uh, be able to support very actively uh, the Hartley Life Care Challenge. Now, in the time that I was secretary, we raised over a million dollars for Hartley which was fantastic. Um, it was it was a really great fit. Um, local community charity. They do mm. fabulous work. Uh, exercise and healthy life was part of our mission. Now, I should disclose that one of the ways people raised money was to sell egg and bacon rolls on payday, which I did <laughs> say to them, okay, but only once a fortnight, please, because, you know. Um, but that was just such a fantastic partnership. You know, it, it brought mm. together the mission of the department, but also the the huge goodwill of people right across the department. And, and it enabled them to engage with people in the Woden Plaza um, who would sponsor, you know, the team and people in the department who would sponsor the team. It was just fantastic. Great. When I got to finance and um, I asked whether we had someone we supported, and the answer was no, that we didn't have anyone we supported. And obviously people made donations in their own time, and which is, of course, fantastic. And so we actually went on a process of discussing with staff whether they'd like to support someone in the local community. And we got all these ideas. So we said to people, nominate who you reckon we should support. And we got a great long list. And we then took the list that had more than one or two nominations and we put that list to staff. We said, if you're interested, vote. Who would you like to support? Mm. We brought it down to three and then we basically, through a process of kind of broad consultation, we, we ended up um, supporting um, communities at work and great collaboration, just fantastic collaboration. And the, the chair of that committee, who's um, probably pretty well known in the community, Archie Tsurimokas from Maya Vandenberg, um, he said it was the best partnership they'd ever had. And I just think it's fantastic. And if you think about it, that was an act of choice that was made. It was everything from, um, you know, donating clothes so people who actually need to look, work ready to present at an interview had something respectable to wear. Mm. Um, the vans that are driven to collect food, um, a couple of com car drivers took to driving those vans, which is fantastic. Our accountant actually went on the committee to help them w with the money side. Uh, that level of engagement, which really is about connecting yes. the department to the community, I just think is... It, is what a good organisation does. And to team your volunteering with your charitable donations, I yeah. think is really important yeah. and something that most of us don't, don't achieve. Yeah. No, if, and look, this this it had to work for the department. There was no point me just saying, you must, because mm. that, that will never work. But it actually, it really struck a chord with people. So I, was, I just thought it was fantastic. Yes, yes. I was speaking to the folks at Atlassian recently and they... Uh, they say the problem with most workplace giving programs is that there's so many different options of places you can sign up to that people get paralysed by choice and support none. So yeah. they've chosen a children's reading charity in Cambodia and then every year uh, about a dozen Atlassian team members go and pay their own way to go to Cambodia and so there's a direct engagement with the project yeah, in, which in is, much the same way. As exactly, which is fantastic. Uh, Jane, just to, uh, to to wrap up uh, a couple of final questions, what, what advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in a funny kind of way, you couldn't give advice to your teenage self because you were just who you were and that's... You know, I mean, it's the never regret the past philosophy that I have. Hmm. M my attitude has always been if I make a decision, know why I'm making it and never regret it. And so the notion of giving advice to my teenage self would kind of conflict <laughs> with that philosophy that I have. But if, but if I were to say what, what probably should have I, I have done more of, I probably should have been more adventurous as a teenager. You know, I went straight from school to university and I did a bit of travel um, while I was at university, but probably not as adventurously as I should have done at that age and stage. But, you know, hey, that's 
2020 retrospective vision, isn't it? What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that there wasn't a glass ceiling. And there is. Where have you experienced it? Oh, I, I very clearly know the first moment my head hit it. Absolutely. Very, very clearly. And look, the reality is it is that stuff about, you know, it's not my term, but man interrupting. There is the stuff um, that says you don't get listened to in the same way. And one of the reasons I was so strong on making sure that we brought women through in the workplace, I think you can see and feel the difference in workplaces where there's a what I always say is the 40-40-20 split. 40 men, 40 women, and the, the rest of the 20 doesn't matter. You need critical mass, and I don't think 30% is enough. Mm. And I think when you have that kind of balance, you have a free-flowing discussion which is not grounded in a bunch of assumptions. Because that's, of course, mostly what the gender stuff is. It's a bunch of assumptions. And so we aren't there yet. And sometimes we like to think that we are, but we aren't. Mm. And I, in, in many ways, I think Australia's got quite a way to go. So I was reading an interesting uh, study by Claudia Golden recently saying that there's a very strong correlation across occupations between the part-time penalty and the gender pay gap. Yeah. Occupations that uh, pay a full-timer more than twice as much as a half-timer yeah. are occupations where you tend to see fewer women and the women tend to be underpaid. Uh, have you thought about ways of kind of making that making part-time work work better as a, as a solution to... Gender pay gaps and well, underrepresentation. The, um, the, the way to make it work better is to basically um, give guys the same flexibility. And you know, when we had this conversation just before I left in finance, what we actually talked about is actually enabling men to step up in the same way on the childcare and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, that that frees everybody up. It's about making no assumption about who's going to do the childcare and who's going to do whatever. And as soon as the guys feel free to do that, I think it actually changes the dynamic. Yes, yes. Uh, how well have you and Trevor done on, the, on that? <laughs> well, look, you know, I mean, basically our kids are now 27 and 23. Um, they seem to be normal, healthy human beings. <laughs> um, you know, they give as good as they get, which I reckon is pretty, pretty good outcome. And, you know, we juggled. We just juggle between the two of us. And, and when I, I think, again, I've said this in the past. I mean, Trevor was an absolutely equal partner um, in the parenting. And, you know, I did more travel probably than he did at certain points in my career. So he, he just had to cope. Hmm. And he did. And he enjoyed parenting just as much as I did. When are you most happy? So now this is a really good question, isn't it? Because, you, you know, there's all sorts of, sort, there's all sorts of happiness. But if I think about the thing that I really enjoy doing, because um, we're a very keen skiing family, I think that's pretty well known. And I was reflecting on powder skiing with my family, um, which if it's good, is fantastic. And there is nothing more terrific to be in the outdoors, um, hurtling down a slope that no one has skied down before. Usually, of course, with my kids having screamed past me at a million miles an hour, but that's just how it is, right? But just just to feel that sense of freedom, um, it's just fantastic. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, basically exercise. Uh, I've, again, it's probably pretty well known. I mean, I taught aerobics for 20 years in this town. Um, there's lots of people who, you know, wave at me and I think, oh, yeah, what did you used to look like in a leotard? <laughs> They're thinking the same about me, I know. But 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 it just staying active, mm. I think it makes a huge difference. I think it keeps you more alert. I think it means you're a better decision maker. Um, it also just means you've got more energy. How often do you exercise? Me, what do you do? five days a week probably. Um, run, bit of weights. Any aerobics still? Um, intermittently when I'm interstate. Uh, just depending on what the weather's like. And I bike ride a little bit too. Okay. So, yeah, you know, try and mix it up. You're probably not old enough to have this be happening to you yet, but there's a point where if you just do the one thing, as you get older, your body doesn't like it so much, you have to mix it up a bit. My knees do occasionally send me that message. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? Oh, guilty pleasures. Well, of course, I could say chocolate, but everyone knows about it. Um, actually, I have to say, 
I think, sampling my way through um, the fantastic new industry called the production of Australian gin. Really? Yeah. So where's your favourite Australian gin from? Well, I, I think it's very hard to say who your favourite is because there's okay. so many good ones. Give, give us a few kind okay. of gins that, that a gin connoisseur listening to this podcast should well, uh, well, try a tipple of. Well, I, I, because we're skiers, I have to um, be parochial and support the wild Brumby gin from up in the mountains. Uh, I do think the Four Pillars guys do a fantastic job. Um, we could go to WA, the uh, West Winds. There's, there's any mm. number of them. It, it's a huge industry. And we don't really need to buy all that offshore stuff when we've got a great domestic industry we can support. And finally, Jane, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? So, I mean, it's so hard, isn't it, when you think about who you are and what's formed you to come up with a particular experience. Um, I think you have experiences that test you in terms of those foundations and people who help you reflect on what they are. But I think for many people it will be going back to parents um, and in my case, particularly my father, who you know, is well known, was a, a Commonwealth secretary and who had an enormous commitment to uh, what it is to have a proper professional public service uh, and to be a proper independent voice um, speaking to government. Mm, mm. And to basically, you know, continuing to push me and my siblings, you know, to be the best that we could. And in terms of how I behaved in the workplace and the things that I learned, I mean, I would have to say that, you know, being parented by him. Somebody once said to me, and again, this is something I've said before many times, you know, when I worked for Maxmore Wilton, people used to say to me, you know, aren't you scared of him? And I said, compared to my father, he's a piece of cake. But, you know, <laughs> dad, dad, dad had a very strong commitment to um, good public service practice, and that's something that informed not only my career, mm. but has informed my approach to life. Well, Jane Holton, uh, leader, skier, former public servant, now banker, gin mm. connoisseur, <laughs> thank you for taking the time to talk with us in the Good Life podcast today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please let your friends know on your favourite social media app. And if you are interested in politics or policy, you might want to check out my Andrew Lee Speeches and Conversations podcast, including a recent speech on reducing inequality. Next week, I'll be back with a new guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.